I don't care if people know that I make angel food cake. Welcome back to Texas, Please, the podcast where you're sick of these old, overdeveloped characters, so let's meet some new tapestries of humanity to delve into. I'm Secret OMG, who's with me here today? Hi, I'm Tomato, and I'm drinking a really good lime seltzer, which I just wanted to share with all of you. Oh, God, I wish I had a lime seltzer. What are we looking at today? Today, we are looking at the much-anticipated, much-beloved comic number 1.17, Tadpoles, which was originally posted on July 4th, 2014. A certain Calix birthday. Curious. You know, it's also the day that Jack and Biddy watched the fireworks in the back of a pickup truck and maybe had some kind of sex. Also, it's Independence Day. You know, independence from memories of your ex-boyfriend, I guess. Uh, The most important thing that could happen on that day is having sex with your new blonde boyfriend to forget about the old one. We're not there yet. Not only are we not there yet, but none of the characters introduced in this strip have anything to do with any of those plot lines. So why are we even talking about it, Tomato? Tell us what happens in fucking 117. Sorry that I'm not got my eye on the prize, the prize being these new wonderful characters, a new set of people to get invested in. Strictly speaking, I think the prize are these gift bags. We'll get to the gift bags. Biddy's also got his eyes on getting invested in a new group of characters. He first shows off the gift bags that he made. Apparently, he loves to give tours and make gift bags, which is fascinating information. Really great character work. Thank you. He says, hello, Samuel, class of 2018, placing us firmly in time. We then go to Faber, where Lardo, who has introduced herself as Larissa, tells the boys, the new boys, that she's given them a tour of Faber Memorial Rink, and they've got a campus tour starting in a minute, if our tour guide decides to show up, aka Biddy, so he's running a little late. We then see, at last, two of the new characters. We've got a very enthusiastic young man in a shark's, I don't know, like his whole outfit is the shark's. And then we learn that he would be a goalie if he comes next year. And then we see a young man looking sort of precarious and uncertain saying, I mean, I guess it's all right, but I'm still uh, leaning towards a state school or somewhere less preppy. Didn't you say you went to one of those like preppy private schools or something? Giving us some of the most scintillating uh, socioeconomic commentary in the comic thus far. Then we move on and we see that the young man in the shark's outfit has said Swassum, which Lardo notes. And then from off screen, a big voice comes and says, good morning, my lovely little tadpoles, which is either shitty or bitty. I think it's probably shitty. Maybe it's bitty. I'm actually not sure. We can discuss that. Then we see Shitty and Biddy coming down the steps of Faber, loaded down with goodies. Biddy is talking. There's a little inset panel where he says, and I brought y'all goodie bags with a weird power light coming from behind his head, a little anime style. And then we get into the most gratuitous use of a gif thus far, I think, in this strip where Biddy is showing off all the things in the goodie bags, which include a Samuel pennant, a map of campus, hockey swag, like a water bottle and a t-shirt, delicious hockey-themed cookies, Biddy's two-time Tri-County Fair award-winning mini pies, and then almighty itinerary for our exclusive tour of Samuel's Hottest Spots. So he's like really gone wild. We then find out that 
Shitty and Nursey, another new character, knew each other at Andover. Shitty's excited to see him. And then in our final most fascinating scene of this lovely strip, Nursey, this new character, says, but yo, man, your other team manager is mad hyper. And Shitty replies, who, Biddy? Brah, Biddy's not a team manager. He's on the team. Dex says, that guy? Wow, I thought since Jack Zimmerman played here, guys would be less good at baking, if you know what I mean. And then last but not least, who we will eventually find out is Chowder. It very excitedly enrolls in Samwell using his phone, proving that he, at the very least, can use the internet on his phone. So good job, Chowder. And that's this entire strip with these fascinating characters, who, by the way, we do not learn the names of two of them. And that's an interesting thing. Let's get into it. Well, we learn that Lardo is named Larissa, a fact that is not important. It is interesting, isn't it? That it took us this long for there to be a woman character with her own name outside of the name given to her by the hockey team. But I'm glad we finally learned it. I don't think we hear this very often again, but that's very nice. What I'm really fascinated by though, is that at least Lardo came with a name and a bit of mythology wrapped around her. These characters do not have that. I guess first I would respond to your point about who's yelling, hello, my lovely little tadpoles, and Biddy's role in the strip. It is interesting that it's sort of hard to say if that's Biddy or Shetty, because they're both established as, like, gregarious, sort of overly enthusiastic characters, so it could be either of them. And in fact, we saw Shitty giving the house tour at the start of the comic. Biddy will end up giving the house tour in year three. I don't believe we see it in year two or four. So to a certain extent, Biddy is kind of filling in a similar cultural stewardship role as Shitty's been shown to have. Yes, both of them apparently self-appointed, which I think is really interesting. I think it's especially interesting that Jack, the captain of the potential team that all of these people are, you know, wanting to be on, is not here. It's very in keeping with his character, but I think it's quite interesting in the illustration of him as a captain. I mean, I do have to presume that he would have met everybody at some other event. Like, if these people are at Sam Walford recruitment, they're probably there for like, you know, two days and a night or something like that. So I'm sure they would have gone to a meeting or gone to a breakfast or there would have been like a party at the house or something where they would have met Jack. That said, the fact that he is not represented as having a leadership role in the team is interesting because in fact, other than Lardo, he's the only person who actually has a leadership role for the team. Right, exactly. Like logically, if Samuel were a real school and this were a real team, I'm sure there's some sort of forced forced time together where he would have met all these recruits. But I think it's really interesting that in the sort of narrative building of these new characters, Jack's relationship with them is nowhere to be found. I mean, he would have talked to them about hockey, presumably. He would have been like, what do you play? How is your team doing? What do you think about how our team is doing? That would have been probably what he wants to talk about. And that's just like never what this comic wants to depict. The fact that he's not even in the background is like quite interesting, that's all. Even if hockey talk is not necessarily the dream of the comic, I don't know. I think it's interesting and sort of indicative of something about his captaincy that we will continue to explore to decreasing depth as the comic goes on. Well, to be clear, I don't think we ever actually see him doing any actual leadership. Yeah. Yep. Maybe that's something we can look at. Like, does Jack Zimmerman lead 
anyone anywhere and how does this fit into my thesis about him and his you know hot top energy anyway let's look at these characters so one nice thing about this comic which is sort of small but that first illustration of Faber is really nice I think it's really beautiful and like very evocative of a time and space and particular place which is cool this is something that we've sort of been talking about as the comic has gone on but Although I don't think that Ngozi has like quite hit the stride that she will hit in the art, you know, there are still going to be tweaks to character designs and to kind of polishing. I think the comic is reaching a place where the backgrounds and angles are starting to get potentially pretty interesting. So, so this is really nice. The character design for everybody who's introduced in this particular strip is basically set. These characters are not really going to change or shift that much. And I think that her art at this point has vastly, vastly matured and sort of solidified and stabilized from where it was even five comics ago. She's obviously really great at backgrounds. Like, you can see the difference between Biddy's dorm room in panel one, which is the same background we've been seeing basically for most of the comic at this point, and then literally the next shot of the entire arena is just full and gorgeous, and there's depth, and you can really feel the shine on the ice and the way that the light is pouring in through those giant windows with a little bit of a hazy quality. It's just like really sumptuous and really gorgeous. The other piece of background that I noticed was that Senor Bun is again on Biddy's bed wearing a little red bow, and I don't like that. Once we're in favor, Biddy comes in and kind of takes over the scene. So I guess I just wanted to ask you about that. Like, what did you think about this development of Biddy's character? How did you take it? I think it works on a couple of levels. Obviously, it's indicative of how people-pleasing he is. I think he obviously has a major sense of, like, moment building. He's trying to create a character of hospitality, and he wants these people who are going to be his teammates to feel welcome. Arguably, he is doing something that's like really nice and really kind and really thoughtful. At the same time, it's also like deeply unnecessary. We don't know enough about what Biddy is supposed to be doing outside of practicing hockey yet to really understand like what it is that he isn't doing while he's putting together these gift baskets. But yeah, I mean, it's just like a giant waste of time. Like these people are going to come to Samwell or they're not. And once they get there, you can make friends with them. You don't have to like put together gift bags. It's kind of like over the top. We'll see in future strips that not everybody loves this about Biddy. I guess if you were making like a really negative reading, you could make the argument that in a way Biddy is making this kind of about him. The way that he's making a big splashy entrance and he's turning the entire event into him talking about the things that he put together. You know, my award-winning pies and so forth. My itinerary. I'm going to show you the things that I consider to be hot spots at Samwell. You can't just like matriculate here and figure out your own life 
I'm going to tell you like where to go and what to see. Then again, it's also fairly recruitment standard. I've been recruited to schools where nobody gave me a gift bag per se, but they do very similar things to try to like entice you to campus. So I think these are qualities of biddies, and what we see him doing here are things that you could really read either way. You could read it as like him being nice and hospitable and kind and outgoing and trying to create a really firm and welcoming sense of inclusion and event for people. You could also read it as a little self-centered. He's also late, by the way. I mean, there's no point to it, but he's delaying this whole tour because he hasn't shown up yet because he was probably like putting these gift bags together. I don't know why I felt so motivated to say so much about these gift bags. Well, I think the gift bags are really something interesting because they, as you say, you can read them two ways. And I would bet in part that the way any given person reads them would be how they themselves might react, at least in part, to this kind of gift. If someone did this to me, I would be like, whoa, you need to back off, right? So that's part of my reaction to this part of Biddy's character is thinking, that's pretty strong, you need to back off. But I also think that other people might find it really exciting and cool as a potential thing in their lives. This is one of the interesting things about Biddy. You can read him in these double ways. And I think that's part of what really got me hooked into the comic as it starts to unfold are the multiple readings possible in each character, especially in Biddy. I think this is also why Biddy is a surprisingly controversial character for, you know, a little sunshiny gem, as some people might consider him to be, because his actions are so understandable in multiple ways. Not to return to lit theory again, or to my favorite theorist, Roland Barthes. He's not my favorite theorist, but I do think about him a lot. One cool thing that he writes about is this idea of the open text, which I feel like I have probably mentioned before. Texts that you as a reader kind of need to enter and interpret. And Check, Please, in this moment, becomes one of those things. Otherwise, if it were handled differently, very innocuous set of actions, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to say about the gift baskets. And I also think there's a lot to say about the way that the narrative gives weight to not only the gift bags rather than baskets, the gift bags, but the fact that there's like an entire animated panel showing off everything in the gift bag. There's something kind of weird about it. We're obviously supposed to read this as a positive. We're supposed to think that Biddy is, well, the term cinnamon roll is overused, but that he's just like a ray of sunshine, splashing goodness and community spirit upon everyone who encounters him. So this is supposed to be like an unquestionable good thing. Like these guys are really lucky to be joining a hockey team where they have somebody like Biddy who does things like this. That's the reading we're supposed to take from the text. Like I do not think for a minute that we're supposed to view this as something you could read two ways. I'm reading it two ways because if somebody gave me a gift bag, I would not be happy. Among other things, now I have all this stuff I have to deal with that you didn't ask me if I wanted. Yeah, actually that's, that's exactly why I would be pissed off. Like I am hyper conscious of consumption and the fact that Somebody presumed I would want a Samwell t-shirt and a Samwell pennant and so on and so forth would deeply annoy me. 
I'm also at the same time the kind of person who likes doing projects like this. Inherently, I would love to put something like this together. I mean, I guess that's essentially why I'm a curator or why I wanted to make a podcast like this. I love doing little projects. But if somebody gave me a bag full of shit, especially if it was like food that I would feel bad about throwing away, even if I didn't want to eat it, you know, I would just be like, oh God, now I have to carry this shit around all day? Whatever, I'm getting too hung up on this. My point is, I think that the comic wants us to think that this is emblematic or representative of how wonderful and how generous and how hospitable and welcoming a human being Biddy is and how much better this hockey team is for having him on it. That he brings this all-welcoming, all-inclusive spirit to the hockey team where from the moment new recruits step onto the campus, he makes them part of the team and brings, you know, brings them into the fold, welcoming them home almost. And then of course he later becomes captain of the team, essentially because he embodies that spirit. So I do not doubt that this is being presented as Biddy's strength. Oh yeah. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly that I don't think we're supposed to be able to read it in in two ways. But I think what's really interesting about this text, and part of the reason I thought we were supposed to read it in multiple ways for a long time, is because it isn't so one note that it doesn't invite a little bit of reading, which we can talk about as we kind of get into the characters. But thinking about Dex's reaction, right, it's pretty interesting. So I think that's one of the things that makes this comic a piece of fiction that I return to over and over. And part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast in the first place and keep wanting to write fiction about these characters and so on and so forth is because there's something that feels like depth, even though what we're supposed to take away from these character portrayals like really is not particularly deep. I've been a recipient of your hospitality and it never made me feel attacked and annoyed. Whereas I think if Viddy handed me his, you know, Tri-County award-winning mini pies, I'd be like, ah, I don't want these fucking pies. I can get my own pie. As I recall, my hospitality was basically, welcome home, here's a knife, start shopping. Yes, it was very good. That's exactly what I enjoy. And then I learned how to make angel food cake. It was a good time. It was a good angel food cake. Actually, I was just thinking the other day about how I don't have an angel food cake pan. Never mind, forget it. So I also have a pretty, maybe stupid question and very basic question, but when I saw all this stuff, maybe just because I'm hyper aware of finances, as I'm sure we all are right now, but my first thought was, who paid for all this shit? And in the blog post, there's a little note saying, apparently there are weird rules surrounding gift giving in the NCAA, so I legitimately spent two hours trying to figure out if Biddy's rampant Southern hospitality, capital S, capital H, was going to cause this Samwell hockey team to get audited, but it ended up being fine. Just imagine Biddy bribing the boys with food and making a tadpole goodie bag assembly line in the house kitchen and Jack walking in and thinking, how, why? Which is the correct reaction, by the way. I guess that Biddy got these shirts and these pennants and maybe like the binders from one of three sources. Either he got them donated by the school or he paid for them, like bought them from the gift shop. Or the hockey team just sitting somewhere in favor has myriad unopened boxes of Samuel hockey keychains, shirts, and water bottles. The baking, it seems like he just spends his own money on. I can imagine that the, uh, 
the campus maps are probably free. I want to posit that he got the uh, boxes in which he puts his mini pies from the suburban Atlanta store Cake Art, which is the only store I have ever wanted to shop at in my entire life. I guess I like to imagine that probably sitting in like the coach's offices, there's just like boxes of old like Samwell hockey water bottles that nobody has ever used or taken. And that Biddy just sort of asked if it was cool if he gave those to the recruits. And the coaches were like, oh, sure. I think that that's probably true. I mean, that's what I would assume as well. That's my experience of any well-funded sports situation is that there's usually merch floating around somewhere of some variety, right? What I think is interesting about this maybe is Biddy's willingness to spend his own resources, time and money, and also other people's resources, like recruiting people in the house to be part of a goodie bag assembly line. I think it's pretty interesting because I know we're supposed to find this charming, but I find it really presumptuous. Like if I were just trying to live my life in my hockey frat house and some guy was like, okay, I know you've been on the team with me for, you know, I don't know, six months, you have to come put bags together. I don't think I would find that charming. And I think it's a an early interesting glance at the way that Biddy kind of manages to change the the cold hearts of people around him into always seeing his perspective and his values and his priorities as important, which I didn't pick up on the first time through when I didn't have the ending to compare it to, you know? In terms of getting the people on the hockey team to do this work for him, I'm sure he was just like, hey, if I bake y'all a pie on Saturday afternoon. Would you mind helping me put together 15 new recruits goodie bags? I'm sure Ransom and Holster and whoever would just be like, yeah, okay. I mean, what else are they going to be doing? Just like hanging out in the kitchen, drinking and fucking around? Who knows? We've talked about what Biddy's financial situation may or may not be. We have no way of knowing, like, what his funds are. He does not appear to have any kind of job. Who knows what sort of money, pocket money, his parents are able to give him. But most college students have some kind of spending money. And I feel like college students spend their money on all different kinds of things. I guess, you know, you just have to presume that what Biddy likes to spend his money on is baking. Some people are buying a lot of drugs. He spends his money on like baking supplies. I can relate. Unfortunately, we just don't know enough about what it is that Biddy does to get money and how much of it he has to really know how much of it is a hardship for him. What I will say is when we start getting into year three, what's introduced is the concept of fining, which is a real thing in, in hockey, where when team members violate certain just sort of like made up nonsensical rules, like don't step on the logo in the middle of the locker room floor, or don't engage in like public displays of affection with your significant other, they have to put, I don't know, like a couple dollars in basically a fine jar. And then the team uses that money for whatever. And it is stated at one point in year three that the fine money does go to Biddy's baking supplies. I don't know if that's happening in year one yet because it hasn't been introduced yet. But eventually there is a sort of source 
for who's paying for his baking for the team, which everybody seems to eat. So like, I guess it makes sense. Seems like a, a worthwhile system. I feel like I'm saying really stupid things. Well, I have something to be honest with you about. I don't know how much there is going on in this trip that that's that interesting. So I don't think you're saying stupid things. And I also think that I am particularly unhinged in the way that I'm interested in how Biddy operates on multiple levels at once. And so that's like my personal obsession that I'm definitely bringing into this. Textually, if we're looking at what's happening in the story on a Watsonian interior level, he doesn't seem to be like having to compel anyone to do any of this with him. We're not shown that he's like bribing or threatening anybody. It just seems like the people on the team are inherently willing to or inclined to participate in his insanity. So it's possible that the only reason why they weren't before was because there wasn't a bitty figure there to sort of unite them around the concept of putting together gift bags. It seems like this is a group of people who's just like willing to and inclined to go along with Biddy's project of creating a better, more Southern Baptist version of a hockey team. Right. When we bring in the winky blog post that says bribing the boys with food to do X, Y, Z, right? I mean, I think it's supposed to just be cute, but there's something about it that I don't know why, but I am completely obsessed with. There's something about Biddy and his particular kind of extreme hospitality to me, you know, a cold-hearted asshole from the Northeast who doesn't understand Southern hospitality, maybe. I am really interested in it and find it slightly sinister in ways that I can't, that are definitely not what the text intends, right? At all. Like, clearly we are supposed to think that he is a little ray of sunshine bringing, as you said, the real warm-hearted, inclusive Southern Baptist hockey team into a reality. But there's something about this, which I think continues to unfold as the year continues and as we get into future versions of Biddy as he gets older and meets even more tadpoles and so on. There's something about this caretaking instinct which becomes increasingly, and I don't always think consciously, certainly not consciously as far as the text is concerned, and I think it's arguable consciously, depending on how you read Biddy, manipulative. And I am obsessed with that. So I think that's why I feel so weird about this. And I also think I feel weird about it because the way that the comic is laid out and sort of the the dancing gift bag goodies, I think like that's such a weird panel to me. Why on earth would I, someone in 2020 lockdown, rereading this comic or whatever, or reading it for the first time, why would I give a shit about what precisely is in the gift bag? There's something here where the comic is almost making a case for Biddy or something. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with it, but I just like don't, I like cannot wrap my head around it as a narrative choice. I think it's bonkers. And I think that's why I keep returning to it because I don't understand other than showing off how cute and perfect Biddy is and these fun swag gifts. Like I don't understand what it's doing narratively. And I feel that way about much of this strip, which we should probably start talking about these new characters. Sorry that I keep dragging us down this rabbit hole, but I just feel obsessed with how I do not understand what the point of this strip is. I want to pause it 
that the reason why everything in the gift bag is listed is so that the award-winning mini pies can effectively be like the punchline at the end of that frame. Not in the sense of a joke, but just as the capper. Here's all the stuff that you would anticipate being included in a swag bag for your new hockey team. And also here are my award-winning Tri-County mini pies. It's insane to me that that panel should exist with all of the effort that goes into making it a gift. And we have not seen Jack and Biddy have a nice conversation. That is such a wild use of narrative space. I think that's why, and this is the first time I'm really feeling like it's so gratuitous. Like we have these new characters who we'll talk about in a second, but to me feel a bit gratuitous. And then we have this like high effort, totally pointless panel. And for some reason I am losing my brain about it, which I didn't expect to do when we first started having this conversation. So thank you for going down the path with me. I mean, I do want to hold the like conversation about this point I'm about to make in response to you sort of more toward the end of the episode, just because it's another one of these larger conversations. But this entire strip is a waste of time because none of the characters being introduced in it will contribute anything to the narrative of Shep, please. Once again, it is purely dead weight. So let's get into those characters. Who do we meet in this wonderful strip? All right, so obviously we meet uh, Dex, who is not named here. And the notable thing about him, and this is something that a lot of people in the fandom get hung up on, is that he says, I thought since Jack Zimmerman played here, you know, classically accepted heterosexual Jack Zimmerman, guys would be less good at baking, if you know what I mean. And you raised the question of, if this isn't homophobia, what is it? It is homophobic, but I don't think he is aware that it's homophobic. It is not bigotry on the level of, I do not think gays should be on the hockey team and I am not comfortable with it. It is more of a response to presumptions about what kind of people play hockey. So it's like soft homophobia in the systemic sense where social thinking is structured around presumptions about who's meant to do what. Also, as I already tried to joke about, interesting how Jack is being constructed as emblematic of a hockey player and therefore a heterosexual, which of course he is not. I just double checked and Dex's name is mentioned, but it's sort of oh, right. thrown in by Chowder very quickly. He says, hey, it's Dex, right? Could you take my picture? It doesn't stick in the mind as well as sort of Nursie's introduction, which I think is a more effective introduction of the three because he already has a connection to someone on the team. But which also doesn't go anywhere, by the way. It's not like Nursie and Shitty are shown to have any sort of connection outside of this one panel. Oh, the conversations that could have been had and weren't had, I guess. I think something about this Dex, this Dex comment is part of why the conversation that obviously unfolded later in the fandom about how there is no homophobia in Check Please, blah, 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 which we've already discussed as sort of an untrue statement, although I understand where it's coming from. This really underlines that for me. I guess I see how it's not immediately labelable as homophobia, but I don't know how else to understand it other than through the lens of homophobia. 
especially with, if you know what I mean, which for me at least has sort of very important Seinfeld-esque connotations attached to it, often used in conversations about people who are somehow othered in a lot of ways, sexuality being one of them. Anyway, it's just interesting to me that this didn't necessarily come across as anything other than almost the way that other kinds of punchlines come across. Again, not as a joke, but as sort of an unexpected thing. Like Fiddy, like the mini pies, is a bit of an unexpected punch at the end of a, of a strip. He's the unexpected member of the team. But all the reasons that he's unexpected are directly linked to gender performance and sexuality. And there's no escaping that. I don't know. So you want to know what's interesting is that Again, I think maybe homophobia for most people implies something that I don't necessarily think is meant to be implied here. But Nursi also presumes that Biddy is a manager. He sees him walk in with Shitty, who he knows to be a hockey player because presumably they played together at Andover. And yet he automatically registers Biddy as not a hockey player. And in fact, the manager, aka the person who's doing all the sort of administrative, non-physical aspects of running the hockey team, in this case is a woman. So he's already seen one female manager and he sees Biddy walk in and he thinks, oh, it's another manager. He doesn't say because this renowned mask is on the hockey team, I presumed there wouldn't be any queers, but like... He's also sort of engaging in, I don't know, homophobic thinking in the systemic sense of unconsciously categorizing what sorts of people do what sorts of things. Female and effeminate people are not hockey players. They take on supportive administrative roles within structures like the hockey team. Masculine people who present as like men are the hockey players. They're both doing like a similar sort of sorting. So that's maybe why I say it's soft homophobia. It's systemic homophobia that causes people to inherently bias based on stereotypical traits. It's not bigotry. Nobody in the strip is like, well, I'm not going to play for a team that has somebody like this on it. I don't want to be in the locker room with him. And of course, both Dex and Nursey end up on the hockey team. So obviously they don't think that way. It's this larger level, less personal, systemic type of homophobia that is prevalent throughout the entire comic. Yeah, exactly. I don't think from what I know about these characters, which by the way, will never be that much. I don't think any of these characters would ever say, oh, gross, you know, you're gay, can't deal with it. Well, the reason why they wouldn't say that is because the creator doesn't want to depict it for good reason, I'm sure. I have no doubt that there are hockey players who on a team like this in the real world would maybe if they've gotten to a school of this caliber, have the good grace not to say it in public or direct it to Biddy, but possibly would go to somebody like Jack, who they consider to be an ally, and be like, hey man, I have a concern about this. That would be really interesting, wouldn't it? But we don't get that. And, and I agree with you. And I think that there are reasons to want to build stories where that isn't part of it. 
Although I do feel sort of confused by the way that homophobia is portrayed. I guess what has just coalesced for me as you were talking, which maybe we touched on when we first started kind of throwing around the question, is Czech please homophobic? But I think the thing that's really synthesizing for me about that question and about kind of the question of homophobia in the Czech please universe is that the story doesn't exist without homophobia. And not only because of Biddy's journey of coming out, but because the entire pretext of the comic is contingent on the unexpected nature of Biddy being a hockey player. And that premise itself requires the reality of real world homophobia to be engaging. It would not exist if it were so easy for effeminate pie baking short 110 pound hockey players or whatever to join Div Div 1 hockey teams. Like this comic would not exist without that. So there's something inherent in the premise, which at least is in conversation with, and in some ways requires real world homophobia in order to be worth writing about. And I never quite put that together before. So that's pretty interesting to me, primarily because of the conversation about the Czech Please universe as a perfect universe where no homophobia exists. I don't know how many times we have to say this, but just inherently, all of the ways in which Biddy's difference is constructed in the comic would not be in the comic without homophobia. He would not have to come out if not for homophobia, because homophobia is the system which creates circumstances under which people have to be in the closet. Like, homophobia creates the closet. So inherently the fact that like Biddy's sort of arc in semester one is about coming out and then we have 17 more arcs about coming out, that is what homophobia is on a systemic level. So like, just, I accept it. I think this podcast has a position on it. I think that's our position. In terms of Dex, yeah, what's his deal? I know that I was like sort of repeating myself from other conversations we've had, but I really just had never, I don't know. I feel like I'm continuously rediscovering things that we talk about as we talk. Anyway, Dex, what is his deal? Well, here's what we find out about Dex. He feels uncomfortable because Samuel is preppy. And then he also asks Chowder whether Chowder went to a preppy private school. And then later he's, as he's talking about he, whether he's coming to Samuel or not, he's uncertain. He's not sure whether he wants to come where so dot, dot, dot preppy and is still thinking about a state school. I think this is a pretty interesting juxtaposition. I don't know. What did you make of it? I think it is interesting that he has obviously mixed up Nursey and Chowder. That said, I mean, I guess we'll sort of talk about the role of the frogs in a few minutes, but he is sort of effectively built here in such a way that I do get a good sense of like who this type of person would be. He's wearing flannel and not in a hipster way. He has a horrible haircut and he's constantly like cockeyed at everything going on around him. And he's talking about how he's uncomfortable with the sort of inherent preppiness of Samwell. If he thinks Samwell is preppy, he must not have been exposed to too much of the world really, because as far as we see of Samwell, it really includes like, all types of people. Like, they have a fairly sizable art department. Shitty is standing right there. He is definitely not preppy. So either he just, like, is using it in a 2010, like, gothic, G-O-F-F-I-K, like, sense, or 
he's got like a really limited worldview. And he specifically makes a statement about how he might be more comfortable going to a state school. It would be interesting to know, wouldn't it, what it is about this experience that convinces him to in fact go to Samwell? Or is he just fronting, you know, to try to like construct an identity for the rest of this hockey team? But of course the comic isn't really interested in investigating that, so we never do find out, although it would be really interesting. I think one of the things that's really effective about this introduction, this is one of the things that Ngozi's good at doing, is using a little detail that we can extrapolate a lot from. Unfortunately, I wish the comic had also extrapolated too, right? But I I do think we get a sense, right? He's uncomfortable. I think there's definitely, for me, Preppy has a very um, socioeconomic idea attached to it. I associate preppiness with wealth. What's interesting to me is that he's asking Chowder this, who is like, not preppy at all. He's in like an athletic sweatshirt, which I do not associate with sort of preppy style. But I wonder whether for Dex, preppy is kind of a stand-in for wealthy. Well, if you were goth, P-O-F-F, I think wearing a San Jose shark sweatshirt would be preppy, yes. All right, you make a very compelling case. So Dex is actually uh, Ebony Darkness Dementia Raven Way. Um, I believe it's pronounced Enemy. I, my point, my point is not that I think that like my immortal is so funny. It obviously isn't. It's just that like the word preppy is uh, overused to the point of like meaninglessness, the same way that the word punk is. Yeah, I think it's possible that that Dex is is using it in the really loose sense of posh almost, or just like not blue collar. Yes, which I think is pretty interesting, probably only because we later find out Dex is from Maine and I have a lot of feelings about Maine and kind of ideas about Maine that people have. What I will say that I think is kind of interesting for the juxtaposition of Samwell and Dex's state school, we don't know that Dex is from Maine yet. I guess he's talking about UMaine. That would be my assumption. UMaine is not a particularly competitive school. It serves a very different population than a place like Yale or Samwell. But the Div 1 hockey team has actually won more Frozen Fours than Yale. They operate in a different league. They don't operate in ECAC, which is where Yale and Samwell plays. They operate in Hockey East, which um, I don't know anything about except that Wikipedia said it came into existence in 1984 when most of its current members split from what is today known as ECAC hockey after disagreements with the Ivy League members. I don't really know what sort of drama went on there because the link was not helpful. No good citation, Wikipedia. But, uh, but it's kind of interesting and speaks to some kind of difference between state schools and Ivy Leagues, which obviously does exist. UMaine also has a, a significantly higher acceptance rate with 92% than Yale. Very, very different. So I don't know whether that's the state school that Dex is talking about or just another state school. As someone who has a lot of experience with state universities, I guess I'm just interested. We don't have to go that deep into it. I don't know how interesting it is for anyone else. But I'm kind of interested in the the way that this comic is constructing the difference between Samwell and state schools, especially because of our conversations about like UGA and how UGA also could have been an interesting place for Biddy to go. There's something about the assumption about what a state school is like, that a state school is not preppy, which by the way, it can be, as anywhere can be, right? Like state schools can be very preppy. UGA is one of the preppiest places I think you'll ever find. 
Right. So that that's part of that definition of the word preppy, right? That That's kind of interesting here. But I don't know. There's just something about the assumptions between what a state school is and what a private school is, what they offer. That's really interesting to me. I don't quite know how to read it. I mean, unless I read like, oh, it's elitism, which I don't know that I want to read into it this way. I don't think it's clear that it is. But I think there's like something interesting there. I wonder if she hadn't decided that he was from Maine yet. He doesn't say, I'll go to you, Maine, or I'll go to my state school. He says, I'm leaning toward going to a state school. And of course, while the vast majority of state schools will be much less expensive than the vast majority of private schools, to really get the discount, you have to go to the school system where you're a resident. So Dex just like going to Michigan or whatever isn't going to necessarily save him like that much money, even though it's a state school. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, I was also thinking, I wonder whether, unfortunately, we never really get a sense of how good any of these people are at hockey, except for Chowder. We get a bit of an idea. We don't really ever find out much about Dex and Nursey on the ice. But you know, he could have been recruited by a really good state school with a really good hockey team. I mean, and that could be also really interesting as like one way to read the situation. We just don't ever know. But I don't know. I think there's something about the the assumptions that, of course, someone who went to Andover would love Samwell, but someone who's thinking about state school feels uncomfortable. I think that that's like a real thing that does happen, especially if you're thinking about you know, small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast that are quite expensive, like, sure, but it doesn't ever really get explored. So instead of becoming a a complex character thing, it just becomes this shorthand. Well, not to drag this out for too much longer, but I think it is relative to Dex, who we learn is coming from, you know, a sort of fisherman background from, I guess, a rural place where people wear flannel non-ironically. Samwell seems very preppy. To somebody else, like, for example, Shitty, Samuel is not a natural fit from somebody coming from Andover. Harvard is a natural fit from somebody coming from Andover, you know? It's like you're supposed to go from the top institution to the top institution. And instead of going from Andover to Harvard, Shitty goes to Samwell, which among his set of Brahmins or whoever the fuck, is considered a wacky out there liberal arts college that's weird. And of course, Samwell also has the, you know, sort of reputation of being one in four, maybe more, and having like a well-developed LGBT scene, and they have like a big art department. So depending on who you are in the comic, Samwell may or may not be more or less preppy, so to speak, or your view of this college may be more or less traditional based on what you would have expected for yourself. I think that would have been really interesting to see more of, I guess, like different ways that people navigate Samwell. To get a better sense of Samwell as a school, we're so high focus on Biddy and, you know, the increasing and yet somehow not deep understanding of the circle of people around him that we very rarely get a sense of Samuel as a whole school. And to me, that's interesting because it says something about the characters, the way that they navigate this institution, you know? And I wish we would have gotten more of it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. We find out that Nursey went to Andover. He's pals with Shitty. As you said, this doesn't go anywhere. We find out that Chowder does his Twitter research and can use the word swasm, which is a very complicated 
grammatical difficult word that he figured out all on his own and Lardo is surprised by. And that's what we find out about them. The word swassum makes me want to vomit. The idea that anybody would use that word actually for serious makes me want to vomit. I can't imagine anybody would actually use the words, it's so awesome. I definitely know people who say, oh, it's so awesome that, but for it to become swassum, and then for like people to treat it like it's a code. I mean, and people were like, what does swassum stand for? It's so awesome. It's always been so awesome. It's not a tricky code. It's very easy to figure out. It's so awesome. Swassum. I don't know. I think that actually, I do think that this is the sort of like very stupid thing that a group of 20 year olds stuck together all the time would do. And I find that pretty funny and compelling. But uh, I wish that like many things, it's sort of like the worst or watered down version of the way that it actually happens when you're in a small group of people in college and you come up with your own language. To me, the way that social group vocab works is you either say something so frequently that you shorten it in a way that makes it easier to say, which swassum is not, or you say things ironically so much to be funny that they just become the way you say them. Yeah, that's real. I would accept maybe swassum as the latter, but I mean, this is one of these things where it's like people who are talking about the comic replicate the language from within the comic and uh, it annoys me. I don't think anyone would ever actually like invent or say this word. Now that I've dragged you into multiple diversions, I guess my question is, let's kind of return back to this idea of what the point is of this fucking strip and these fucking characters, who by the way, I have fondness for. I will not have fondness for all the new characters, but for these particular characters, I've spent enough strips with them that I do have fondness for them. When they show up in a fic, I'm like, oh, it's my old friend, you know, the angry lobster man and his dick suck of a boyfriend. Like, I'm excited. When I see Chowder, I'm like, oh, it's that cute, cute boy who no one ever seems to want to write as an adult. Lucky me. Like, it's fine. And I'm excited to see them. They're my old friends. However, what the fuck is the point? What is the point of these stupid characters in this dumb script? Yes. I don't know if the rest of this episode is just going to turn into a mishmash of complaints, but you've listened to 25 episodes of the show. Why not one more? Here's the deal. I need to stop saying here's the deal. I like when you say here's the deal and have started saying it myself. Speaking of friend group linguistic. Oh, I say it way too much. I have a, keep this in the episode or don't. Maybe listeners want to hear it. I have a problem where I cannot make a simple declarative sentence without effectively like introducing the sentence. My friends, speaking of things that you say way too much and it becomes ironic, My friends used to make fun of me because I'm constantly saying, both verbally and in text, look. Before I start talking, I'll be like, look, and then I'll say what I want to say. So one of my friends once started saying every time I said look, he would reply with, I'm looking. When I stop being on a podcast call with you or after I've like hung out with you or something, I find myself saying look with like this hand gesture or here's the deal. And I actually really like it. Every time I say it, I'm like, oh, that's from my good friend Secret. Yeah, I I have a really hard time with saying simple sentences without introducing them somehow. 
So I will sometimes say something before a sentence similar to, here's what I'll say. And of course, when I'm editing a podcast, I can just edit that right out of there and I'll sound maybe more like a real person. But if you do have a conversation with me, I will say things before I make a sentence and it's just completely unnecessary. Having said that, which is also something I say all the time, here we fucking go, just blowing this whole strip out of the water. Here's the deal. In terms of verisimilitude, yes. Every year, you would get a bunch of new students coming to the school to play hockey. So if what you want to do is replicate the verisimilitude of an actual college hockey team, you ought to introduce some new characters every year. Of course, she doesn't introduce a full complement of new characters, which would probably be more like five, six, seven guys or something like that. She, I guess, caps it at three. However, yeah, in the real world, you're going to need new people to play on the team. Something that you may or may not have noticed, and it was really subtle, so if you didn't, I forgive you, is that the webcomic Check Please is not taking place in the real world, so you do not actually have to introduce new characters. And the question about whether you do or not comes down to whether or not they contribute to the comic in one of these two ways. Number one, do they add something thematically? Does the existence of one of these characters drive home a point or pull out a thread that's important for the reader to see to understand the whole story? Number two, do they contribute to the plot somehow? Does something about them being in the comic contribute meaningfully to what happens in the comic? I think a good test for this is If you took the character out of the comic, would it change the comic? And we already talked about this with Lardo, where the answer is no. And in terms of literally these three characters, Dex, Nursey, and Chowder, the answer also is no. If you took all of these characters out of the comic, nothing would change, nothing would happen. Another thread I'll introduce here before I finally shut up, I mean, not forever, just so that you can talk, is... We're still sort of dancing around at this point in year one. What is the plot of this comic? What is the story that we're actually being told here? Is it, here's a diverse group of young men who are all brought together by the game of hockey and somebody like Biddy can create a found family in that space? Is it, Biddy is becoming a better hockey player? He's getting over his fear of checking and eventually he learns how to win? Or is it Biddy falls in love with Jack Zimmerman and gets married when he's 22 to well-regarded heterosexual Jack Zimmerman? If the comic were actually that first plot that I outlined, a less plot-intensive but nevertheless pointed story about a diverse group of people from all different backgrounds coming together in such a way that everyone can be themselves and yet have affirming, stabilizing friendships, then sure, the introduction of this particular grab bag of men is helpful to making that thematic point. 
But these characters have nothing to do with Biddy's journey specifically, either in regard to his college hockey career or his future relationship with noted bottom separatist Jack Zimmerman. If you didn't introduce them and spent this strip doing something else, like, for example, developing Biddy's hockey playing or his relationship with Jack Zimmerman, that might actually be better for your overall comic. I've said my piece. In conclusion, the end. I will say that I agree with you in terms of story, obviously. Yes, very much agree. These three do not add anything to the plot. They are not in some sort of psychosexual, like, thruple drama with Jack and Biddy. Tragically, that would have been a great comic, but, you know, I'll just have to write fanfic about another psychosexual dramatic thruple that one could read into this comic. Anyway, I call it Jowder. I just got a mental image of like clam chowder pattern jeans and it was very upsetting. Anyway, here's what I'll say. I think they do serve a purpose. Unfortunately, it's not a purpose that has anything to do with the plot or the theme or like an interesting story or developing anything at all to do with the comic or the art. I think they do the same thing that, bear with me, you know this the TV show, The Brady Bunch? I do. Remember, I don't know how much of The Brady Bunch you've seen, but I've seen, you know, a a fair scattering of episodes across the seasons. And at some point, all of the kids are like a little too old to be cute anymore. And they're like a little too old to be interesting. So they bring on another character whose name is Oliver. I believe his name is Cousin Oliver. And the answer to your question of how much of the Brady Bunch have I seen is enough. The whole idea of Cousin Oliver was that he would capture a market who had grown tired of the Brady children's antics. And now a new child with new antics who's like pretty creepy. You ever watch an episode with this kid on it? Not my style. I mean, I feel like you're proposing now that we do some sort of Nick at Night theme podcast. And what I have to say is... Yeah, I feel like my entire youth basically consisted of nothing but watching Nick at Night. Yeah, we can talk about uh, the Brady Bunch and uh, Gilligan's Island and uh, some real some real gems. Anyway, listen, the point that I'm trying to make here is that much like Cousin Oliver was a clear pandering bit to the audience in order to try to bring more people in. I don't know if this is conscious or purposeful, but f- these characters have like a twofold use. A, in the growing nascent fandom that will soon bloom into an actual fandom like within the next year there's going to be an actual fandom for this comic this gives more people more characters to interact with to use as set pieces and set dressing in their fan works and to identify with if they don't identify with the characters already introduced the other thing they do is add more diversity to the line of the hockey team. In the first year, the five main characters who we meet are Holster, Ransom, Jack, Shitty, and Biddy, who are diverse in a couple of different ways, but four of them look awfully alike, and then bits of their identities, which are perhaps not your straight, white, cis, Christian assumed identity of like the default man hockey player, we find out slowly over time, either in the comic or in extras may not be true for all of them, but that's sort of like the image that's presented. Whereas in these 
three new characters. We find out Chowder is Chinese. We actually don't know anything about Nursi's background, but he clearly is not Lily Pale. He's mixed race. Is that addressed in the comic or is that in an extra? It's in an extra somewhere. I think now is a bad time to go digging around for it. But yes, I think he has, I think he has one African-American and one white parent. There's a lot of drama about this topic in the fandom, which I can't weigh in on right now. But um, he's, he's mixed race and he is from New York, like the city. So that adds more diversity to a lineup that isn't immediately clearly diverse, right? So I think, I don't think that's a bad thing, by the way. Like, I think choosing to bring more characters in, or at least choosing to think about how to bring a wider variety of people to hockey when the real hockey is, like, not a particularly kind place to people of color or to queer people, I I think that's, like, not a bad thing. I think it's too bad that those experiences, much like other experiences of identity, don't get a lot of story time in the comic, but... Again, that's probably not the point of the comic. So I guess understandable. So I don't think it's a bad thing to do that on its face. I think that we can talk about whether or not it's effectively done and how much we actually know about these characters. Spoiler, almost nothing. But the more that I read, the more I'm thinking that maybe we really just don't know anything about any of these characters actually. So that's, you know, that's fun. I think that they do serve that purpose and it's specifically an audience facing purpose. It doesn't have anything to do with the story. It has everything to do with the way that the comic is interacting with its readers. That doesn't make for a stronger piece of art. It might make for a more popular piece of media though. So I think they are serving that purpose. I think it adds one more purpose, which is that it gives the artist more people to draw. Not only because eventually she needs to start identifying people to place around frames, but because, you know, I think if you've, master drawing the same five people, you start to get a bit bored. And if it becomes clear that you're going to be living with this project for a long time, having, you know, I think in a previous episode, I made a joke about how you want to draw like different noses. Well, yes, I was trying to be funny, but I was also being serious, like drawing the same four people or five people over and over and over again isn't very interesting. So if you're going to be living with this comic for like another six years at the point when this strip is being drawn, having other people to draw maybe just keeps you invested. Right. Totally agree. That's fine, especially since this is a passion project still at this point. I I think that's totally fine. I mean, but I also think that, um, unfortunately, although there are impacts of these characters existing in the comic, and although they've given a lot of people a lot of joy, they just don't actually add anything to the comic itself. And I wish they did because they're all kind of interesting. All of their individual experiences being at Samuel are probably pretty interesting. The more that we read Check, Please, the more that I realize why fandom for it is both so rewarding and so frustrating in many capacities. One of those capacities is that the characters in the comic have almost no interiority that we ever have access to. We have a little bit of access to Biddy's interiority, what he chooses to share. We have a little bit occasionally of access to Jack's interiority, although that basically stops during the second half of the comic. And then as more and more characters get introduced, we get fewer and fewer and fewer insights into them as complex people and and they become flatter and flatter. That's not a bad thing necessarily if you're in a fandom because it means you have lots and lots of people to kind of invent. But for a piece of art that is entirely wrapped up in the question of identity, it is it does not make for a strong story. So 
thinking about these characters, not just in terms of the overall bitty dominant plot of the comic, in terms of these characters themselves, the only one who really develops it all or has any kind of mini arc very, very, very subtly from the point in which they're introduced in this strip to the end of the comic is Dex. Nursey and Chowder, I would argue, are basically the same exact people at the point when the comic ends as they are as they're introduced here. We know them for roughly three years of their lives, and they do not seem to grow or change at all. Nursey's vibe is like, hey, chill. Chatter's vibe is to be supportive and enthusiastic about everything. Dex goes from casting some shade on the concept of baking to also baking. I am not on the frog side of fandom, so I can only really speak to this peripherally from what I've noticed. But I do think that many, many readers supporting your point about the use of these these characters within the comic have really invested a lot in that arc. To me, it's microscopic, barely perceptible within the actual comic. And it also isn't linked into anything larger. It's just sort of somebody who like initially presumed that a hockey player wouldn't also be a baker and then realized that he also enjoyed helping Biddy bake sometimes. It really is no more complicated and deep than that within the actual narrative. But I have seen so many like meta posts that drill deep down into that characterization. I'm not throwing shade on people for doing it because I do it to all sorts of things in fandom, like that's the fun of it. That said, another reason for these characters to be in this comic would be if they all had their own like little arcs where over the course of the comic they became subtly different people, but they really do not. They really are just like static entities populating the background. I think what I'm realizing more and more, and I'm, I'll probably repeat this in the future, so forgive me, but I'm realizing that not only is Check Please not that coherent as a piece of art, but it is so incoherent that the only way that I can build an image of it in my head is by explicitly including its fandom and the conversations in fandom into it. And I think that's probably because the conversations in fandom had such a direct impact, or this is my impression on what happened in the comic. It's like most pieces of art that have a fandom, I think of the piece of art on its own. And then I think of the fandom as a community. And I obviously there's links between them and, you know, there's stories that go back and forth. And certainly, I mean, I've had the experience in multiple fandoms of there being an impact on canon because fandom was too gay. And so like the canon changed so that that reading became harder to access. So I've certainly had that experience. This is almost similar to that experience, except it's in a different arena, but probably because Ngozi is so much closer to her audience than the other things I've been in fandoms for, which are like movies and TV shows, you know, like industry, not single creators working their way up from 
play to livelihood. It's a much less direct link. And because of that, or for whatever reason, those pieces of art tend to stand on their own. However incoherent, I can understand them as pieces in and of themselves, but it's almost like the more we dive into Checkley's, the more I cannot understand it as a work without thinking about how it situates itself in relationship to the people reading it, which is really interesting because it doesn't feel like other things that I've engaged with or thought about this deeply. It doesn't feel like it exists without its audience. And lots of other pieces of art do exist, whether anyone's looking at them or not. Uh, that is deeply fascinating to me because it is an assumption that I would never have made myself. And I would not have presumed that you would have felt that way either. The whole point of paratext theory is that these things that surround and amplify the text are, in fact, parts of how the text is read. So to me, when I talk about things like the extras and the blogs and the tweets and also all of the sort of metatextual discourse happening around the periphery of the comic, to me, it's part of the reception of the comic. Like, it's part of how the comic is read is the stuff surrounding it. And not to like get too deep into sort of paratextual theory because, you know, literary theory is your thing and I don't necessarily think people listening to this need to like hear that much about it. But I think the proper comparison or the sort of canonical comparison is that if you're holding a book, the text is everything that's inside the book. It's everything that's page one to the last page. The paratext is the title of the book, the cover of the book, the bio of the author, the blurb on the back, any kinds of, you know, review quotes from other authors, the publisher, any sort of index, the way the book is organized, all of these other things that are not properly part of the text, and yet they are also inseparable from the text. They are paratextual. They inherently shape how you perceive the text, although they are not part of the text. All of the things happening on the periphery of this comic that I keep referring to as paratext, I'm using it intentionally to include those things in my reading. Yes, even though what's in the particular strip that's found when you click on, you know, omgcheckplease.tumblr.com slash tag slash main. That's the comic. But all of the other paratexts surrounding it are inherently inseparable from how you read that comic because it's part of the packaging. And fandom and the paratexts produced by fandom are increasingly, and especially like in the case of Please, part of that paratext. It's impossible to read Please. period, without that view. And I would argue that essentially all texts are like that as well. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, say you're thinking of a novel or you're thinking of a movie. There are all of these sort of adjunct texts that are shaped by whoever it is, an author or a marketer or an audience that are created in order to construct how you read the text. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm surprised. Not that I think it's an incorrect view. I just hadn't considered that we hadn't all sort of agreed upon the way in which we were reading this comic in dialogue with the text surrounding it. I think that I just had a limited view 
of paratext. For me, when I think about paratexts, I usually think about, as you say, a book or even an online text. There are lots of different texts surrounding the actual story. In this case, it's the Twitters and the extras and the Askawellies and Ngozi's Word of God blog posts and blah, blah, blah. And I had accepted all of that as paratext. The fandom felt a bit separate to me. And I understood intellectually that paratexts were being created out of the fandom and that the conversation and metatextual conversations around the work were part of how we were looking at the work. I don't think that I have felt with other texts that the text itself was inseparable from those things. Like obviously paratexts change how we feel and are able to interpret any given text. As you said, if it's a book, the book cover impacts how you feel about it and different illustrations on the book cover can lead to different interpretations of the text, blah, blah, blah. However, I feel like when I look at a book, in, if I want to, for some reason, remove the text from its paratexts, I feel like it can still be coherently understood as a thing without access to those other texts. And for some reason, I just didn't fully grasp how completely impossible it is to really engage with Check, Please, Deeply, not only in that middle concentric circle, which is just the main updates to the comic. I think that I thought that it sort of like spread out to the second concentric circle, which is all of the extras that Ngozi created and maybe like fan art and stuff made, but mostly Ngozi created material. I think what's surprising to me in this moment is how completely unable you are to understand Check, Please as a complex document without having been in and fully engaging with the fandom. Because for a book or for a movie, these finite things that fandoms develop after they're done, that's not the case. So I think I'm just having this like weird realization and, and new understanding of how much the continued relationship with its surrounding community is part of the text that you cannot separate that centers concentric circle from in a meaningful way. So what I will say is that I do not think this is necessarily a settled case where every scholar or theorist who writes on the concept of what paratext is agrees necessarily that fandom should be included in that. I will say that it's my understanding that Henry Jenkins and other scholars have effectively argued for within the new media digital landscape, of which of course Check Please is like very much a part, there is this concept of convergence where the sort of creator and corporate ownership structure and the fan structure are converging to blur the lines of what is paratext. That said, since we're not like a literary theory or even, or even technically speaking, a fan studies podcast, although obviously we're a fan studies podcast, I don't know how much more flocking this concept is necessarily helpful, but... To me, the way that the fandom shapes the text is always going to be part of the text. But how much does that relate to Dex, Chatter, and Nursey? Quite a bit, actually, because that's the reason anybody cares about them. I just feel like interior to my brain, my perspective just shifted a little bit. I am by no means a scholar in any capacity, but 
I guess I had always seen check please as developing in reaction to fan conversations and therefore the canonical or semi-canonical paratextual material was in conversation with those fan spaces. But I just never fully grasped before this comic strip maybe that's one use it has, how those fan conversations are so integral to Check, Please that I think it is not a complete text without them. And that's why when you encounter Check, Please in a book, you're like, what the fuck is this? Or you're like, oh, what a cute story. Okay, now I can forget about it. Whereas for me, I can never forget about this fucking comic and will be stuck here until the end of my days probably because it is a coherent text to me. But I only just now put it together that it's because of being part of the fan conversations about it that it is somewhat coherent. Like it cannot be coherent standing on its own. And I think that's, that is different from other fandoms that I have personally been part of. Like the work is coherent without fans reacting to it. Maybe it's better, more interesting, or there's more to explore once fans react to it, but it's coherent. And I don't think that Check Please is coherent without fans. The paratexts are not ignorable. And I don't think that's always the case. Well, at this point, I'd like to announce that our podcast will be from here pivoting to a literary theory podcast. So tune in next week when we go through cover to cover Jacques Ranciere's The Emancipated Spectator. Thanks and see you then. Uh, 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 okay. I had one more thing that I was thinking about, which maybe we can talk about, which is this GIF situation. GIF, whatever. The moving thing. You know what I'm talking about. There are like three gifs in the comic as a whole none of them are necessary they're just like there's the bitch oh four i can't count whatever well presuming you're not counting the hockey ships yeah i'm not counting the the hockey ships there's a handful of these animated panels none of them do anything except maybe be slightly funny all that i wanted to suggest about this speaking of check please's new media status is unlike incredible work of genius Homestuck. Check, please. Does not ever do anything with these gifts. And like, why? What is the point in including them? Why have them at all? I think in early strips is pretty clear. It's like a fun experiment and it's unexpected. It gets your attention as a reader. Okay, fine. But by now, especially for this panel in which literally nothing happens except dancing cookies for no reason. I don't know. Gifts could have been really interesting and cool. Like imagine... Biddy's vlog actually being animated or imagine like a cool hockey play being animated or, or actually making use of the fact that this is a webcomic. Obviously it didn't stay a webcomic and became a book. And so, you know, I'm sure there's good reasons not to have invested in the new media part of the webcomic, but the fact that it was Ngozi's thesis and that multi-platform online storytelling was part of that thesis. I just like, why not use the form well? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? I have several thoughts about this. The first is Homestuck didn't use GIFs effectively either. My second thought is Stan Stanley, the mastermind behind Boy Meets Boy at all, was using GIFs in her web comics in the mid-2000s. So this isn't exactly like a major innovation. I feel like the first couple of animated panels, the high frequency sound in Assist and Bishu did not in The Boys are effectively reaction images. And I wonder if the hope wasn't sort of that people would use those panels as reaction images or something. I feel like the way that 
these panels are used in this comic. There will be one more in year two. It'll also be about the frogs. I think the way these panels are being used in this comic is effectively like embroidery, so to speak. It's ornamentation. It's making it a little fancier. It is not a transformative element of storytelling. What is changed or what is enhanced by having, you know, the shirt and the cookies in this comic jiggle around in one panel? Nothing. I feel like Ngozi has a very cinematic eye. We've talked a lot about how she sees every panel as a still from a film or something like that. And we've talked a lot about how she understands storyboarding and she has effectively like a camera's eye when she's designing her shots, sometimes to really powerful effect. For example, the second panel in this comic, that broad pan against a really dramatic ice rink, that's a great shot. The sort of establishing shot that you'd see in some kind of video medium. Often when I'm looking at panels in check plays, I think to myself, oh, this is something that could be animated. It could be animation or a live shot just as well as it could be two-dimensional. So I feel like you can easily identify, strip by strip, various places where you could use a GIF or a GIF, I also don't know which it is, to effectively activate or turn the panel on. That said, would it ever be substantively changing anything so that the reading or the storytelling shifted based on the use of that technology? I don't know, and I don't think that was ever the comics project. And I will say that unlike, you know, why are you introducing these, these three new goddamn characters when we don't even know anything about, like, the romantic lead who's not even in this strip? I'm not saying, oh, if... GIFs aren't going to add anything, why even bother adding them? Because I think these are something where they're not taking anything away, they're just not adding anything necessarily. They create visual interest. I think they probably sustained the engagement of the author. And eventually, we stopped using them. And nobody missed them, and that's fine. Yeah, they are ornamentation. And I'm sure they were like engaging to make. I guess I just feel foolishly that if you're going to do something with your form, perhaps there could be a reason. <laughs> but, but visual interest is a good enough reason, you know? I, I just think that there's something about the irregularity of their use that just like is a little thorn in my side because it just feels asymmetrical. And, uh, I personally am really interested in form. So I guess because I think that the comic does experiment with form in the way that it experiments with the Twitter and with other, you know, multi-platform, mostly the Twitter, but with multi-platform storytelling um, and with the asks and so on and so forth, which did, as we've just spent half an hour discussing, like contribute significantly to the coherence of the comic as a whole. Some part of me is frustrated that they, that this form doesn't get really experimented with. But I just was curious what you were thinking about, especially because I don't know. This just this one feels just like really pointless. Like it's not commentary. It's not anything. It's just little dancing uh, cookies. But hey, okay. Yeah. yeah. The next one will be uh, in that. Uh, I, I, it's two point three. I don't remember the name of it. Where Chatter is complaining to Biddy about how Dex and Nursey are fighting. 
when Shouter is complaining about them fighting, it'll be like a little gif of Dex and Nursey sort of like tugging Shouter like back and forth. That's the that's the next and final appearance of those outside of hockey shit strips. Here's what's important to me, and here's what I'm bothered by the comic not doing more with. Telling a coherent plot that makes narrative sense, developing its characters in such a way that they fit holistically into the plot. To me, if she wants to fuck around with, you know, animating a couple things in three or four strips because it's interesting and she thought it was a cool thing to try, that's fine, whatever. I'm not bothered by it. I don't think the goal of this comic was ever to really challenge the conventions of two-dimensional webcomic storytelling by introducing GIFs. I think it's just a fun thing she did as a matter of interest. Yeah. And then she didn't have time to do it anymore. On the other hand, supposedly this comic is telling a story about compelling characters. So to me, it's not quite the same waste of time. And I'm also, I am less concerned than you are with the comic playing with form or experimenting or doing anything new or being radical in how it chooses to enforce its own conventions. I think it would be interesting, and I would find it satisfying if it did, provided that it was already doing its first job of, like, an interesting story well told. But it's not doing that. So if I have to complain about something, I would rather she just, through a conventional format, tell a good story. Like, that's what I'm here to complain about. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, maybe this is just my personal, like, affection for conventional experimentation that's showing through. That's something I really value in a lot of stories. It's one of the reasons I like fandom. Like, fandom is so much about questioning and pushing on conventions at least my experience of it is, that's what I find really valuable in it. So I, as I've said, like 80 times now, yeah, I don't think Checkpoints is experimental and I don't think it needs to be. I think its inability to tell its story is why I'm so stuck on the form though, because I like a good story well told. Like I don't need everything to be innovative. If something is interestingly done, I'm into it. You know, it doesn't have to be like pushing on boundaries. But I think that maybe why I'm so into this is that people talked so much about this comic as though it were innovative, not in its form, but in its story. And then as we read and think more about it, it's like, oh, it didn't innovate anything, (laughs) maybe. And so that's sort of where I'm like stuck. The one thing that it truly attempted to, I think maybe innovate is giving it too much credit, but it it truly did try to engage in multi-platform storytelling. Yes. That said, the way in which it did that was incredibly limited. It started a year into the comic, so it wasn't even like part of the premise of the comic from the beginning of the comic. It was something that was developed later on after the comic was already successful. And after about a year, it eventually became unfeasible and some lip service was paid to the concept of Biddy tweeting through the creation of a chirp book where the story that was told in the tweets, such as it is, 
is presented in a bound volume that people can now peruse. I believe she did do her MFA thesis work on the concept of multi-platform storytelling. I think after that work was over, the incentive to continue with that fell off. I also, I mean, I don't know, it's complicated. And the reason why it's complicated is because it's not like you had a comic and a Twitter, both of which were concurrent for the entire run of the story. The Twitter had a use for a time and then it was no longer useful and it stopped. But that is the one thing that I can call to mind that truly seemed to be different about this particular story. And when I got into the Checklist fandom in the middle of 2016, as everybody listening has heard like 40 times and they'll hear another 800 times, people were talking a lot about how this was a multi-platform story and the fact that there was a Twitter and the fact that this was being told in like different venues and the story all fit together. Like people spoke very highly of that project and it seemed to be part of the outward facing identity of Check Please as a project. I have not heard anybody talk about multi-platform storytelling in relationship to this comic for like two or three years at this point. People talk about Biggie's tweets only in the sense that they're a source of background information. Or people will like, you know, screenshot a tweet where Biddy says something bitchy and then people will be like, iconic, and they'll like reblog it. Or, you know, oftentimes I'll be on like FFA and somebody will ask something like, we never even find out what Biddy's major is. And I'll be like, it's in this tweet. Like he's an American studies major. And I'll link it in the discussion. But it's not something that comes up as part of the identity of the comic as a multi-platform story. It's something that was in the life of the comic, a relatively short-lived experiment that fell off when either its usefulness or its convenience was expired. I just looked at the honors that Mbudu Kazu got for Check, Please. And these are the honors it actually won, not the ones it was nominated for. I'm just going to read them quickly. 2017 NPR, 100 Favorite Comics and Graphic Novels. 2017 National Cartoonist Society winner, Best Online Comic, Long Form. 2018 Best of Austin, Arts and Entertainment Critics Pick. 2018 New York Public Library's Best Books, Top 10 Books for Teens. 2019 Yelsa Morris Award finalist, so didn't win, but finalist. And then 2019 Harvey Awards winner, Digital Book of the Year. 2019 Ignatz Awards winner, Outstanding Comic. And maybe the reason that I am so fucking obsessed with trying to figure out what this comic is doing is because I do not understand how this incoherent, much beloved comic, by the way, that I have spent like years investing literally thousands of hours of my time into thinking and writing about. But I don't understand how this comic won all these awards when it was not only not innovative or like questioning something or pushing on something or thinking about something, but didn't tell a story well. And I think that's why I keep returning to how maybe it was innovative. Like I keep trying to figure it out because I'm trying to integrate the understanding of its major huge success. But I just don't think it like, I think I'm looking in the wrong place. Like I think that's why I keep going back to it, but it's not actually what the comic was doing. I will speak to this very briefly because I think that this is a 
very, very wide ranging conversation that I would love to engage in in something like a special episode because I do think that I would go all in on hashing this out with you. But my brief answer is that number one, the meaning of awards, I think is rather more limited than people commonly understand. You know, I think the way in which awards are decided or judged or weighed is often very convoluted and political. And I don't mean in the sense of like, we want to give a diversity of comics creators awards. I mean, in the sense of like different people within the panel of judges politicking to try to reach a consensus. I think that it's very easy to see things like best and that means something in some ways, but in other ways, it just sort of means like, this is the one thing that we all agreed we could rationally give an award to, which I know sounds kind of convoluted, but I think this is a much longer conversation we can have. I think the other thing that's worth noting is that comics are a notoriously shallow medium. Obviously, there are some truly groundbreaking, deeply rich graphic novels that I could name if I felt like it, but I don't, so I won't. However, for the most part, we're talking about a medium that is limited by usually a few pages and not that much room spatially to get a story across. So I do not read like that many comics. I do not read any comic books. I am not interested at all in anything that's like superhero related. I have read web comics, which in theory don't have the limitations of something like say a printed comic book but they are often usually very gag-based and pretty shallow. The depth with which you have to plumb character and story in a comic is just like not that much. So I think, yes, it is in some ways super frustrating to see how critically lauded and how much the establishment has embraced this comic that I am looking at and thinking, that's insane. On the other hand, what are this comic's competitors? Are they necessarily any better in the way that we're criticizing? And also, what is the inherent meaning of the awards that this comic is winning? Like, what does it mean to be a best comic? Well, essentially it just means that like, the handful of people who were sitting around trying to come to a consensus all couldn't think of a reason why Check Please wasn't the best comic, you know? So again, if this is an interesting topic to listeners, maybe we'll get more into it later in some other episode. But that's my, I guess it wasn't that brief. I probably just talked for about like seven minutes. But uh, yeah, that's my, that's my relatively truncated response to the meaning of Check Please having won awards. I would love for that to be a special episode. So maybe uh, I'll just force the hand of our listeners and they'll have to listen to us talk about it. Um, I have a lot of feelings about, about kind of like awards in, in the literature world, but I, 
haven't thought as much about it in comics. So I don't know. That'd be really interesting. Have you ever applied for a job and not gotten the job and you're just like, it seems like I was perfect for this job and every interview I had for this job indicated that I would be getting the job. So I don't quite understand why I didn't get the job. And ultimately the reason why you didn't get the job is just something like the other candidate was the one that everybody felt the least about and therefore it was the safest choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that kind of thing. It's like when you're not on the inside of that decision-making process, it can be like mind boggling, but like from the inside, it's not actually that complicated. Yeah. While you were talking about it, I was actually thinking about the times I've been involved in hiring people. (laughs) So, so yeah, there's something worth plumbing there in another episode. I mean, when I was picking like fanfics for the fanfic episode that we did, I didn't pick my favorite fanfics. I had to like set a list of conditions in my head for which fanfics I thought would be appropriate to talk about in that episode. I'm just trying to construct why people would look at this and be like, ah, we will anoint this the best comic. Oh yeah. I mean, what you said absolutely makes sense. And I personally don't necessarily have the highest opinion of works if they win things. Like sometimes that makes me more suspicious of a work depending on the award and like what I personally think of that particular history of the award and so on and so forth. Winning an award, as you said, can mean lots of different things. And sometimes what it can mean is this fits the idea of what we think is good. And the idea of what we think is good, i.e. the panel of judges, that's informed by a lot of things. How well a story is told is not always one of those things. So you're right. Anyway, don't worry. My mother also tells me I'm boring when I talk to her about my interests. (laughs) I don't think your interests are boring. I think we have a lot of interests in common. I think in my next fan fiction, I'm going to use the phrase Brechtian spectator, like in the title of the fan fiction. So this is the level on which we are working. And I think, you know, we're dozens of episodes in at this point. So if people aren't aware of that, then I don't know what they're still doing here. Turn it off now. It's always a pleasure talking to you about whatever the fuck we end up talking about. What are we going to look at next time? You want to know what? I really jumped the gun and closed the outline. So uh, next time, we are going to be looking at comic number 1.18, Playoffs, part one. When was the last time we saw them playing hockey? You know what? I don't care. They're going to be playing like a little eensy-weensy bit of hockey in this next comic. However, the more exciting thing is that adult baby man Jack Zimmerman runs out of a restaurant crying. So that's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, wait, wait. Nitpickers out there, I just want you to know, I'm aware he doesn't run and I'm aware he's not crying. Those tears are somewhere. They're just not in his eyeballs or on his face. I'm sure... After he gets out of the restaurant, he like walks down the street, like tears beaming down his face. I think when we first became friends, I told you I was going to write you a story where Jack cries in public. And I don't think I've done it yet. So somebody get on that. Yes, it was because I was depressed looking at like the cheese display in the jewel on Southport. Anyway, uh, who are we? Where, Where are we? What's happening? I'm Secret OMG. If you want to find me, you can look at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R at Tumblr.com. I'm also at 
secretomg, S-K-R-T-O-M-G at tumblr.com if you want the South Park side of things. And I write check please fic at familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatowrites.tumblr.com. You can find me on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. I presume if you're listening to this, you know where to find us, but you can find us on checkdisplease.tumblr.com where if you send us asks, eventually one of us will get to it. Actually, okay, brief sentimental announcement. When people send us asks, it makes me very happy and I would love all of your asks. Well, that's that. Okay. All right, let's hang up so that we can open up the Babeland website and talk about which dildos Jackson Rubin would buy to console himself after crying over a burrito. Very good. Uh, I'll see you there. Bye. Bye.